Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Turfs in the City. My name is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. I'm a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. And this is our show called Turfs in the City. It's all about my move to New York in order to work with legacy operators and make sure that they can get integrated into the legal market. So super excited about that work. Today's guest is Tavian Crossland. I came across this gentleman from mutual friends that we got an introduction. And then I understand that he wrote an article about legacy operators. And I actually read the article and I was blown away. That article has been republished in Honeysuckle Magazine. So make sure that you go on Honeysuckle Magazine's site. That's Honeysuckle Magazine. It's a cannabis magazine. And the title of the article is The War on Weed decimated my community? Will there be restitution? So there's so much to unpack there. Tavian, I'm so glad to have you. Welcome to Terps in the City. Thank you very much for having me. I'm sorry I jumped in early on my hello. Hello. No, that's fine. See, we like this very interactive. I consider my guests to be more of a co-host than a guest. And once you're a co-host, you're pretty much family with me. So you're doing That's fine. I like to make New York the backdrop for our conversations, right? So let's talk about you as a native New Yorker, born and grown. What what borough are you from? What what borough are you representing? I I am from Brooklyn. I am a a die. If you ever met anyone from Brooklyn, you know that we love Brooklyn and we probably have a tattoo of Brooklyn somewhere on our body, (laughs) which I do. Awesome. I am, a, I am a diehard Brooklyn guy. And it's funny because my cousin was just up here yesterday from down south. Mm-hmm. And I was showing him live right where my grandfather came up for the Great Migration. And yeah. so I took him on a little tour. He started out on Atlantic Avenue in one of these little cul-de-sacs sharing a room with his cousin. Yeah, And then he moved to Herkima in Brooklyn right across the street from Restoration. And I started the family there and eventually was able to buy a brownstone on Lewis and McDonald and Bed-Stuy for all of my people who know Brooklyn and know yes. Bed-Stuy. Uh, and so I, we, we took a little tour around the I think that's beautiful. Block. I think that's beautiful that yeah. one, you know the heritage of your grandfather's journey on the Great Migration. You want to share with our audience a little bit about what the Great Migration was uh, as it applies to Black people in, in this country? Well, the Great Migration was basically the people in the South who were just finishing sharecropping. My grandfather sharecropped, his mother sharecropped, and they couldn't find jobs. They couldn't find work. They were being abused. You know, it was it was hard for them to to move around in a free way and in a way with dignity. And so they came up north. And, you know, it, it's, it's a line if you're like in the Carolinas area, you came up to Philly, Baltimore. New York City, or some people got a little bit higher to Boston. If you were in a, like New Orleans, Bayou region, Georgia, you went up to Chicago gotcha. and more in the Illinois area. And some of those people actually also went out west. So nice. that was the Great Migration, basically. And my grandfather was a part of it. He's originally from Bennisville, South Carolina. So him and his brother made a pact to never go back and came up north. That's awesome. And then you still have a cousin who lives down south. So you were family down there. So you were giving your cousin a tour. Like our grandfather came here with Mm -hmm. with dreams of, you know, freedom and not having being under oppression in the south and made their life in New York. And that's how multiple generations after 
are, and, and you're a father yourself. So one, two, three, three generations after your grandfather, you guys are still there, still prospering mm-hmm. in that in that same Brooklyn area. So I think that's yep. that's really interesting. You know, just talking about prosperity and, and New York, let's talk a little bit about in your the article that I mentioned, you you talk about you know, people and, and employment and having jobs and other jobs and, you know, side hustles and, and things like that. You want to talk about that that hustle co- culture of New York? Because sometimes people have a negative connotation, but it's really about, you know, feeding your family and, and being, you know, the opposite of lazy, being industrious and using your talents that you've been given by the Almighty, by God, by Jah, to the fullest capability. So let's talk about that New York hustle culture. Well, yeah, I think you you hit it on the nose, and I'll just have to piggyback what you just said. When I grew up, it was most hustle kind of meant any sort of work. Yeah, it was just like getting out and grinding, and if that was a nine to five. Or that was you on some corner, or that was you taking trips and you know trying to find a way to make some whichever way you were doing it. There, there's many ways that it looks like, but everything encompassed the hustle. Yeah, basically is is like the mindset that that we came from, and I feel like the era hip hop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jay Z has that. That uh famous song where he's like, don't you ever, ever, ever come around here no more, where he goes down to Baltimore and like, Big rapped about it, Jay rapped about it, a, a lot of Brooklyn dudes went down to Philly, be more, and like, hustled and, and made money in other areas, and like, yeah. that Brooklyn hustle, you literally find a person from Brooklyn everywhere around the world. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we find a way to like, spread out and just like reach and and i think that has a lot to do with that hustle mentality and just that that attitude and go get it nature you know i i love it and you know what even tying it back to the regulations that that have been released as far as the conditional license for adult use there's a definition about you know justice involved individuals and that that definition's pretty narrow with regards to like it doesn't consider like full legacy like those people who made, you know, made those moves from the hustle mentality, again, building an, an industry, giving medicine to sick people, sick patients using through cannabis. One of the things that, you know, there've been a lot of this discussion about is the fact that, yeah, people may not have their charge in New York. They may have gone to other, you saw about Beemore, Philly, they went, they're New Yorkers who went somewhere to hustle and to, you know, evangelize about cannabis and commercialized cannabis, and they got their charges elsewhere, but they don't fit under that justice-involved criteria. So what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, honestly, I think I, I kind of see it as three tiers. Like, I, the people that were incarcerated have to be recognized, first and foremost, yes. and have to be made. Put just They just have to be elevated in every way possible. Correct. To make sure they're a part of this, this economy and a part of this market and culture and everything else. So that's full stop. First and foremost, I would say then the second layer, second tier would be your legacy operators, the people that were, and I'm so glad you said it, provide medicine to people. Because I, I honestly feel like everyone uses cannabis medicinally. And, and we're self-medicating. And sometimes we don't even know why we're self-medicating. Correct. But, but we are, because cannabis is truly a medicinal herb. And so I'm glad you said that. And, and presented it like that. 
And then the next layer would be just when we say a community impacted by the war on drugs, we aren't just speaking about those folks who are incarcerated. Yes. Right. That that war on drugs led to actual policy implementation, resources, capital, manpower. My neighborhood, I grew up in Brownsville. My neighborhood was known as an impact zone, impact zone. Yep. During the Julian era, Bill Branton, broken windows policy. I don't know for those who know, he was the police commissioner at the time. He had like two, maybe three terms. I think he had one under Bloomberg too in New York. He had a, he was the police commissioner out in California, same thing. Harsh enforcement, yeah. So an impact zone was basically they would flood your neighborhood with blue and whites. That's that's the the beat cops, cops that just got on the job, stuff like that. They would flood your neighborhood. And you know, New York City has the largest police force in the world. So they can really occupy space. Yeah. If they wanted to. And that's exactly what they what they did. And I remember there being um holding cells in a in a like R V where they had jail cells in there ready to hold people if, if they couldn't get them to the precinct in time or just. And every black man I grew up with has been stopping at first. Again, that's saying you as the nucleus, you as the center, any adult male that you know, come into proximity with has been stopped and frisked by law enforcement. Every adult male in your cohort in your immediate circle and extended circle have had law enforcement put their hands on their physical body as part of the stop and frisk laws that were in place. Multiple times. And I will also say most of us have had guns drawn on us by the police. Cause usually they, a lot of times they approach you guns drawn. Right. And, right. And like, it doesn't always end up in a shooting, but a lot of times just it's guns drawn. No questions asked. You didn't even start an interaction and engagement. Your guns already, and I've experienced that. And you, have, and you so, have experienced having law enforcement draw a gun on, on you. Yeah, and yeah. So, while I was at work, actually doing security. So, so when, <laughs> so when you think about, you know, justice involved being tied to, you know, an arrest or conviction, is there opportunity to extend that to people who have had those types of in, interactions with law enforcement? Is there opportunity think, to kind of look at, you know? Justice involved could mean, could be extended to mean people who have been uh, due to cannabis possession or cannabis I, use, their cannabis interactions been well, really stopped and frisked. Well, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, cannabis was like the engine to to incarceration. Yeah. And the thing that drove the numbers. And a lot of times because of its popularity and, mm-hmm. you know, how many consumers and everything. So it's something that you could could easily generate a charge on and could easily stop people and get them. The point of stop and frisk was for guns, and that was less than 1%. They would find guns. Most of them wouldn't find guns. It's, the numbers are abysmal. Stop and frisk did not work. But the impact to the community, the trauma, right, the trauma I feel in my body yes. when I talk about when I walk past a cop, when I see a cop, when a cop is behind me while I'm driving, the fact that I've seen you point your barrel at me, it lives in my body. I feel it. Yeah. Right. It's a mini, it's a mini anxiety attack. Right. It's a, I punch my teeth. I break out in sweats. Like that lives in so many of our bodies yeah. in the communities that we come from. 
And that's the thing that needs to be addressed. And maybe it's not directly con- connected to cannabis in a, in a linear way. Right. But that's the thing that you used as the engine as you went about terrorizing our community. Yeah, I always say the cannabis charge is a gateway into the pr- criminal justice system. And, and it usually happens at a young stage. And, and sometimes when it happens to adolescents, it changes their whole course of their life as far as you may not be able to go to college. You may not be able to get any federal grants or, or loans. And it completely changes the course. You can't live in you know certain neighborhoods and, and things like that. So those are some detrimental impacts. But, you know, it's good to see that, you know, with the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, that the New York state government is trying to move past that by really expressly in text talking about the harm caused by criminalization, the significant harm caused by by criminalization. And we're, we, we'd love, we would love to see more work in that area. I think this was a, a first pass at honoring that legislative intent. And, and we're looking to see more from the OCM and the CC, CCB. And, and we're excited to, to work with them and have them speak directly to legacy operators so they can figure out that path forward in a way that has the impact that we're all looking for. I want to go back to your article a little bit. Oh, go ahead. Did you have something else to say? No, I was just going to add that I feel like as far as the people that they're allowing to be social equity applicants, Mm -hmm. that language is a little more broad in in who can be involved in that and you just being in the community in which was overly policed. Correct. Because of cannabis and uh, war on drugs. That, that you would be included in that. So I just wanted to, to add that that note to it oh. so that people who, who may want to get involved don't think that they can't and may want right. to put out an application don't think that they can't just because they were incarcerated. Right. You can still apply. I'm going to still apply for a social equity application. Absolutely. As, as you should. And, you know, the Justice Foundation, that's what we're here for. That's just us. J-U-S-T-U-S dot foundation is our website. And we work directly with legacy operators to to support and assist them. Another thing in your article is, you know, about the commercialization of cannabis. And, you know, this is something that we we definitely talk about is, you know, the fact that the legacy operators, they understand cannabis as a as a commodity and they understand the supply chain, they understand how to commercialize. So you say we know our local markets better than anyone and have the user base. And when the time comes that cannabis is legal federally, there is an existing national distribution network poised to help grow the sector. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the benefit that the state would get from a commercialization from a supply chain standpoint by being inclusive and, and, and encouraging legacy operators to get involved? Well, I think, first of all, you continue to provide that economic base for those operators. And and that's that's why I wrote the article. It's crucial that we don't uh, come with a double whammy, right. you know, hit you during criminalization and then hit you when legalization comes around you know, and, and everyone else is making money, but you're actually losing your, your economic base. So that'd be the first thing I would want to highlight. Outside of that, I mean, there has been national distribution networks this entire time. Right. 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 Uh, from California, from Colorado, every state that turned the lights on, you started getting national distribution networks and, and small businesses and small operators making those connections and going out and meeting people. I myself 
was a part of the Green Rush. I went out to Colorado, just like a cold call, just went out there on a flight and started talking to people and yep. know, started trying to meet mm-hmm. people and figure things out. And that's exactly what I did. And, you know, we put in that 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 footwork, that that grind, that hustle, and we made those connections and we made those networks and, and they started working and they were operating. And, you know, that's that's something that, why I have to go out and do the market research for that? Yeah. Why I have to go out and make the mistakes that you have to go make out, right? I made the mistakes already. Right? Why why go out and do that? Why lose this economic base for, for these people who have, who have been tending to the market with great care? Right. I would have to say with great yeah. care. Self-regulated. So, Self-regulated yeah, from a quality and safety perspective. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's one of the things that I always... I wanted to educate people about the cannabis. I wanted to let them know exactly how they were going to feel, exactly what they were going to, you know, experience in, and how you should use it, dosage and, and things like that. Cause I didn't want you to have a bad experience. I didn't want people to be like, ah, I don't like smoking weed. I have smoked one time and I was, ah, I don't yeah. like. so I was always, always about educating, but those, those national di- distribution networks are vital. And then obviously when you come down to, to the smaller scale, to the state scale, now you have all of these. New York was a was quite a big hub for cannabis. We got cannabis from California, Hawaii, Canada, a bunch of cannabis from Canada. Mm-hmm. And we pretty much dis- distributed it throughout the Northeast coastline. Yeah. And, and, and that's that's like legacy operators in, in general, that mm-hmm. whole network of of legacy operators across the nation. So I want to make it clear that when you're saying we, you're not talking about yourself as like this kingpin, but you're talking about the the the, the network of legacy operators and how they operate, how they understand the supply chain and how government, specifically yes. the New York OCM, the New York CCB, can, can learn some best practices from that. And, you know, in your article, what I really love about how you put it together is you also wove in some really important statistics. So you did you did your research and you mentioned that, you know, the Rand Corporation found that the black market for cannabis generated some 40.6 billion in 2010. So keep in mind that's 12 years ago. And that's that's an estimate, but c- cannabis is money. Cannabis is lucrative. And there's enough based on those numbers for those who are already existing in the legal industry to continue to do what they're doing, they shouldn't feel threatened by legacy operators joining because there's enough for everyone, right? But it, it is big business. And that was just the black market. That was the underground market was $40.6 billion in, in 2010. Correct. I stand corrected. At the end of t- 2021, another number you threw in here, cannabis employed some 428,000 people full time. Cannabis provides mm-hmm. such a great economical opportunity for for jurisdictions as far as getting people employed and, and employed in a way that they feel committed to the cause and and they feel feel like they're getting dignity and and respect as well. So there, you have and a I, lot of. I feel like with that, I feel like with that, the employment also it's not just like you you are a small business. You are a small business. Every individual operator were small businesses. They weren't licensed. They didn't have an LLC. They didn't have a DBA. They didn't have those things. But each of those employed people were actually small businesses. And I think 
we want to talk about stirring the economy, these small businesses need to, to thrive. Yeah. And so you, you, the beauty of talking to you is you have this national perspective because you've traveled. You went to, you followed the Green Rush out to Colorado and, and learned more about the industry there. And then you also talk about going to Barcelona. So you have that international perspective. Let's, let's hear a little bit about your, your international experience with cannabis. What, what, what it felt like as a black man going to Europe and, and really being a fly in the wall observing the industry there. What, what did you observe? Well, like I wrote in the article, I, I observed, you know, black men being in the same posture that we're usually de- relegated to. And, you know, that's, that's the, the person taking the most risk. Right. Is is where we are positioned, and so you know, while I was out there just walking down the street, was definitely looking for some cannabis. I am a connoisseur, so I want to smoke <laughs> anywhere I go. And uh, somebody coffee shop, coffee shop. It really reminded me of somebody on the block yelling "sour, sour." Right, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> and, and like I like followed him through the city. Right. He's walking a mile a minute and me and my wife are like chasing him through the city, basically. And he like lets me off to another person. And then I start following that person. Right. <laughs> through Barcelona, like walking down these streets, these little alleys and everything and finally end up in the place. And uh, they probably had us walking in circles. We didn't know where we were at. Right. So, but. Ingenuity of that for. For the safety of the legacy, exactly. You know, it's like exactly. we're gonna get you a little lost so that you don't know where where you're going. And and safety is such an important issue with legacy operators because we want them to, you know, now that cannabis is legal, we want them to be able to participate. But you know, coming forward as a legacy operator is such a you know it's it's challenging because you want to be the voice for the community. You you see all these other people making this money and they didn't take the risks. Um, so it's necessary to come out of the shadows, but there's still that safety concern. So, you know, that's what we do a lot of our work is around making sure that people can feel safe where they can put in their legitimate applications and 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 transition from the the legacy industry into the legal industry. Well, that, that was a huge consideration for me just in publishing an article, just saying that I was going to, you know, step out yeah. in that way. And- and bring that sort of attention to myself, you know, not really being a little skeptical on how decriminalized it is for me. And you're, you're representing thousands and that's, that's what makes it all worth it. Right. Is that you're, and again, me as a cannabis attorney, you know, I'm not legacy myself, but if I can be more vocal about it, it's, it gives a layer of protection to the people who can't because they're afraid of whether it's losing custody of their kids or afraid of incarceration or other, you know, other types of penalization. You know, that's why I have to be a loud voice in this movement is to make sure people can be safe. They can be safe in this. And the social stigma, too. There's some social yes. stigma with it. Let's you know, talk just, about that. Let's talk about it. social stigma. You, you know, the black church, you know, there's a lot of that there. So, uh, you know, I find it... I. I it's something that I used to not want to tell people because, you know, they love you and then they find out you smoke weed and it's like, ah, right. I don't know about you anymore. <laughs> it's like, like, literally like two seconds ago, you love me. Like I'm still right. the same person. <laughs> but yeah, you know, at work, having to worry about 
whether or not, you know, people are going to look at you as you're lazy or something like that. I personally, like my advocacy started in my corners. And yeah. the one thing I wanted to do was like not be apologetic about me being a consumer and being a connoisseur and enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And also like busting my ass and being able to be just as productive, if not more productive as anybody else on the team. Yep. And you can't say that, you know, and ultimately all of this is rooted in anti-blackness and anti-Mexican sentiment. Ultimately, right. every single stigma is built on that foundation. So even you saying, oh, you smoke, you're lazy. That was, oh, you know, black people smoke, they're lazy. They, right. You know, that was the whole, the whole, the Mexicans are lazy. Oh, yeah. Right. That, that, that was the whole understanding of it, how they decriminalized it in the first place, you know, in the stigma that they built around it and the propaganda that they built around it in order to to get those black churches to feel like, oh, that's that's, you know, the devil's letter. That's something that yeah. you shouldn't be doing. That's Reefer madness. <laughs> you know, like, Reefer madness. Yeah, exactly. Reefer madness is literally, oh, you're going to want to have sex with white women. Right. After you smoke this. Yeah, that's, that's the opposite. Yeah, so it's, it's you know I want to destigmatize it because it's rooted in that anti-black. Yeah, it needs to. We we need to peel back those layers, and we need to to look in the mirror a little bit and say, this is who we have been. Yes, and we need to move away from the stigmas, bring it out into the light. Understand, you could be a great parent, you can be a great worker, yeah, you can be a great colleague, a great friend, even as a person that consumes consumes cannabis. It's I think that's great. And, you know, even myself as like, you know, I'm an attorney. So just the way you talk about like people like, oh, I love you. And then they're like, ah, you smoke weed. Like me, I'm like, you're a lawyer. Oh my gosh. And they're all they're seeing is dollar signs and me in court and doing all Mm -hmm. that. No, I'm a cannabis attorney. It's like, ah, (laughs) you went to law school to be a weed attorney. So it was like similar stuff. And it took a while for my parents to, you know, adjust and accept that that was the choice that I was Mm -hmm. making. So it's really interesting when you talk about the stigma and the fact that it's still here, still very present, people are still in the cannabis closet mm-hmm. and there's not, there's healing to be had that people are denying themselves and there's money to be made that they're denying themselves from, from the legal cannabis industry. And there's a lot of restitution that needs to happen. There's a lot of restorative justice. We talked about restorative yeah. justice when we first met and, and that's really important part of, of the work that we do. You said in New York city, black and Latinx people make up more than made up more than 92% of those are right, marijuana related charges in 2020. So this is after it was medical there. This is after it legalization, if we can call it legalization, prior to adult use. In 2020, 92% of those arrested on marijuana-related charges were Black and Latin people. Just just a, a slight correction, and I was very intentional in my article to write Afro-Latinx. Okay, Black... Yes. Black, black and Afro-Latinx. Like, that, that does clarify yeah. things. I, I myself am a half, half Puerto Rican. Yeah. Yeah. That's going back to the, you know, people with really strong indigenous ties to the African continent. And it's, it's not a mutable characteristic, as we say in the law, no. meaning you can't take no. it off. You can't blend it. You're clearly a black person. You tan for a reason. <laughs> yeah. You tan, tan for a reason. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I thought yeah. that, that statistic was what's was working. No, I want, I love that. I love it. Cause it, it kind of, it's, it made it smaller. What the, the pool that we're talking about made it even smaller. Like, like you were specifically targeting 
these individuals with non-mutable black characteristics. And that's, a, and that's a huge statistic. That's a huge statistic when you speak about mm-hmm. just the demographics. I agree. Just the demographics of what New York City looks like and how smaller the population we are, but how large mm-hmm. we are represented in those statistics. Right. And how we all research those as best as they can, you know, get the data sets or research shows that we use cannabis at the same rates. Or research shows that we sell cannabis at the same rates. If you can write your own, the ideal, you know, social equity, restorative justice piece of legislation, what are the components you would like to see in there? That's a big question. It is. (laughs) Restorative justice cooperative is trying to make sure that the, the positive externalities are resilient. Yes. We don't want them to fade away. We don't want them to, to move away from what social equity means, right? And so we're making sure that our membership is mostly Black and Afro-Latin. Actually, we have a remit to, to make it 80% Black and Afro-Latinx based on all of the numbers. And also with our company, just making sure the, the impacts that we have for our community are generational. Generational impacts, positive impacts are crucial because the, the, the war on drugs had generational impacts. Yeah. It wasn't just one person left behind, just one person incarcerated. It wasn't just one family, one generation. It was father, son, grandson. You can find yeah. this in our community. So we need to make sure that the, the, the positive impacts are generational as well. Yes. And so... That's ultimately what I think restorative justice looks like and restitution looks like for the war on drugs and, and the criminalization of marijuana, and how it was used as an engine to criminalize black and brown bodies. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of what I would say my vision would. It would extend beyond just the individual. For me, it's a second reparations. Yes. For me, for me when I hear a president say that we're going to target black people using cannabis, and then to see that reflected in stop and frisk numbers in New York City, top down, through and through. Yes. We talk about the tapes, those things. When was he president? And we're, we're just getting here. Yeah. We're just getting to this day. We have to make sure that it's not a right now thing, uh, a popular thing, and it's a flash in the pan. Right. It's not a trend. It's not an in-style, in-style cliche term, social equity. Uh, exactly. I, I hear it so much. It, it rolls off the people's tongue so easily. And then when, when I ask a clarifying question or a follow-up question, it's shallow. We're right. not actually getting anything. We're not actually talking about anything. We're not actually talking about restitution. Right. You know, so this is an opportunity. Like you said, that, that number 12 years ago, 11 years ago, $40.6 billion, this is an opportunity to inject a billion-dollar industry in an economy and actually have economic justice mm. that's going to propel this restorative justice. That's where it lives. That's this restorative justice lives in economic justice. So let's use this billion-dollar industry to actually put our money where our mouth is so that you can empower us to build our communities, empower us to build our politics, empower us to build our institutions by empowering us to, to earn capital in the industry, we've already been earning capital and, and make it run. Mm-hmm. Very efficiently. Smoothly. 
oh, for, yes. for decades and decades during Prohibition. Yes. Well, that that's yes. really awesome. And as we we draw to a close, you know, I always ask my guests two questions towards the end. I, the first one is, how can I or Terps in the city, maybe people listening, how can we help you with your cause, with this movement, with what you're trying to accomplish as your legacy? I think right now we recently just had some regulations passed by the cannabis board and it's open for comment from the public. Anyone can respond. And so if you're interested and want to help and want to give voice to something, you need to be a part of that commentary. You need to be a part of, and and maybe this isn't the regulations that you need to tap into because it's about labeling and some other pretty mundane stuff, but like, when we're talking about social equity issues, if yes. you want to actually see whatever your vision is, I gave my vision. If you actually want to see whatever your vision is, then you need to be a part of that process in a, a you know, a democratic way. We need to exercise those muscles and you need to interject yourself into the process. And so that's a way and that's a means by which they're allowing that to happen. And I'm appreciative for that. That's that's a great, that's great advice. That's great, great advice. You know, get involved. Don't talk about it. Be about it. Right. If you be the change mm-hmm. you want to see by exactly. making comments. So, you know, the public comment period on the retail conditional license rules that ended on the 31st last week, Wednesday, CCB released the rules on packaging, labeling, and advertising. And then that started a new 60-day comment period. So there is opportunity to influence those regulations, review those 27. Also lab testing for all of the people that want to cultivate out there. Correct. Something that you have to be paying attention to. That was also in the last four meetings. Beautiful. Thank you. And we will help in that way. Listeners, please, especially those of you in New York, review those regulations and really let your voices be heard. You can connect with Unlock, the Unified Legacy Operators Council at unlocknow.org and share your feedback with other legacy operators as well. But even besides legacy, anyone who wants to participate in the industry, you need to review the regulations as they come up and comment. My last question for you today is another question I always ask my guests in the end is if I can introduce you to any one person who you think will take your mission to the next level, if I could introduce you to one person who would be able to assist you in the world, famous, not famous, who would that be? Like the most amazing grower possible. Okay. Have so many mad scientists' ideas for strains and looks and terpenes and things of that sort. And so I would love to work the, the most seasoned grower, someone who just really knows that would be the person I want to be t- put in touch with. And even if they don't grow with me, even if we don't collaborate, like if I could just get like, I was give me 45 minutes right. to ask any questions I want. <laughs> it's yeah. just like open book. Anything I need to know, I can ask in that 45 minutes. And yes, that would be amazing. I think we can make that happen for you. So let's start moving in that direction. Thank you, Tavian, so much for your time. This was such a great interview. Those those of you listening in, you know, 
There are other episodes of Terps in the City. Feel free to go on terpsinthecity.com to see the other people that I've interviewed, hear their perspective. If you're interested in being on the show, again, this season I'm chronicling my journey as I move to New York and go back and forth between New York and Florida, please go ahead and you can email me at smpesquire at outlook.com. In addition, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, please contact me at smpesquire at outlook.com. So I want to thank you for your time and attention. Tavian, this has been such a pleasure talking to you today. This is not going to be the last time that you're on Terps in the City. So thank you so much. Have, have a wonderful week and look out for another episode every Thursday of Terps in the City. Thanks for joining Terps in the City. Take care. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.